I'm Arlene from London City Mission, and I've had the privilege to come to Billericay for almost 15 years. So it feels like I'm visiting the distant relatives, you know, those that you only go to over Christmas. And this is Christmas time, so I'm very privileged to see you guys. When I started with um, Billericay, I had long brown hair, and I blame it on COVID. <laughs> we couldn't go to the hairdresser, so therefore now we have white hair. Um, the true meaning revealed. Marlene, London City Mission, originally from South Africa, came here 25 years ago on holiday, and I'm still on holiday. This is the best holiday ever. I absolutely love being part of um, uh, London. I fell in love with the people of London, but I must say, as I was driving here in the green fields of Essex, and I was like, oh, it's so beautiful, it's not concrete. So, um, yeah, I'm going to ask God one day, why did he put a country bumpkin in an inner city setting? But that's okay, because I love the people. So I go, with London City Mission, our vision is to partner churches, local churches, with community groups that's least likely to have a Christian friend. So who are these people groups? So, of course, it would be people like... um, who's got other faiths, like Islam. So 55% of my community is Muslim, Islamic, from Bangladesh mainly. Or it might be a homeless person, or a drug addict. Or it might be somebody living on a council estate, uh, who's just, or an elderly person who can't get out and go join people. Or it could be... <coughs> somebody who comes in from another country, a migrant worker or an asylum seeker or maybe somebody from Ghana or from um, Africa who's come, like myself, and joined a South African church um, in the beginning days just to feel a little bit of home somewhere. Now those churches, uh, they all need encouragement how to go beyond just their normal catchment. And you know how we, we kind of like wait for the people to come to church? Oh, our church is empty, nobody comes to our church. You know, in the early days, there was no church. It was no church building. There was church people. But the church was amongst the people, in the communities, in homes. That's where Jesus was praised. So we are encouraging churches and church members to go out into the communities, to befriend people where they are. If it is that drug addict, to be there where they are, to connect with them on a personal level, intentionally for the gospel. And we show people, the the church members, how easy it is. It's not that difficult. So that's our mission and our vision. So I want to tell you a little bit about where what I've been up to, um, where your vouchers, where we have been up to, because you are part of my mission field. Remember, we're in a partnership, and it's difficult for you guys to go walk the streets of London. Um, so that's my part, and you, you guys are praying for me faithfully. You're supporting me uh, financially as well as in other ways, emotionally. So what have we been busy with this past year. 
we have tried to bring hope into churches. So, this is where I need to flick back quickly to here. First, I want to ask you guys, what are you hoping for in your personal life? Are you hoping, I mean, we're coming to the end of a year. What is your hope? Is it um, for this year just to get finished? And you can get over the winter and just, it's like you're in a tunnel and you just want to get to the end of, or you see the light at the end of the tunnel. Or maybe you're at a crossroad and you need to make decisions. Am I going to sell the house? Am I going to move downsize? Am I, what, where am I? What, what am I doing with my life? Or maybe you're like, I just need to get out of here. If I can just go somewhere else, these people are driving me mad. Or maybe you're totally at peace and you're saying, I'm just happy and content where I am. I just want peace and quiet. Leave me alone. What are you hoping for? Now, I want to tell you some stories of the people we've been engaging with. So I'm going to tell you about a few girls that I've met. So I'll set the stage. I've been going into this Asylum Seeker Hotel. Uh, We managed to get our foot in the door, which allows me to do art and craft sessions. Now, I hate art and craft. It's messy, it's glitter, I'm not artistic. The kids just squeeze that little tube until it's empty. You're like, no, I've just paid two pounds for that. But they love it. And through that, we built relationships. Now, With asylum seekers, the kids are the most knowledgeable about English. The parents struggle, so quite often the children have to translate for the parents. But at these sessions, the parents have to stay because I'm not going to take responsibility for your kids. Um, So the parents are on the periphery and I'm doing this art and craft and sometimes they don't even understand what I'm saying, but you're like, come on sweetie, don't squeeze the tube, okay? We just get the job done. But it's all about building relationship, being positive, giving these kids who get... Okay, let me tell you how their lives are. Imagine a budget hotel like Premier Inn or Ibis. It's designed for an overnight stay. It's not designed to be lived in. They literally have a bed, a double bed, with a bunk bed that goes over the double bed. So it's like, like that. And around this bed, there's just enough floor space to walk around. They've got one shelf that normally the tea and coffee is on. And then they've got one little wardrobe. Now, you guys have been in these hotels. There's four hangers in these wardrobes. They're this wide. Now, put a family who's been fleeing for their lives in this this room. If you've got more than... If, if you don't all fit into the room, you get two rooms and the parents are split. One parent with this child and one with the others. But all your life belonging goes into this setup. Now you're a six, healthy six, seven-year-old child. You want to play. Your parents are tired. They don't have money. It's cold. They're from countries that's very hot. And they, they don't want to go out. They don't know the people... They're suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, from the trauma they've been through. And 
you just want to play ball. You're not allowed to play in the corridors, you're not allowed to play in the halls. Where do you play? The local park, your parents say, don't go there because there's drunk people everywhere. There's needles, it's dirty, don't go there. You come from a countryside village in Iran or Iraq, you're not used to Main Street, Whitechapel. So these poor kids, they, the parents get £8 per person per week. And from that £8, they have to buy their toiletries, their food, not, they get a meal, they get their meals, but most of the time they don't like the food. Because in Whitechapel, being predominantly a Muslim area, they get curry. In Persia, they don't eat chili. So you guys know, when you have to eat spicy food, you can't eat it because it's just burning you. They're not used to it. So they end up using this eight pound to buy some food for their child to so the child can just at least eat. They're not used to our white bread or our bread. They're used to flat breads and stuff like that. And you know, kids are fussy. So the eight pound doesn't go far. Besides, one bus journey is one pound sixty-five. That's just going one way. Now you still need to get back. So how far does your eight pounds go? So the parents are depressed. The children are hyperactive. And we've got this hot spot. So creating an environment in the dining hall, and I'm just a bit cheeky, like I make friends with the uh, management, and then I say, right, we're going to play hide and seek now. And then you can see all the security staff jump to attention. And I'm like, right, five, four, three, two, one, go. And then the kids scatter. And you can see everybody's a bit nervous. But before they realize, I'm like, right, game's over. Let's get back. The kids had to run around. They could hide. They were in the kitchen under the pots and pans. Like, not the kitchen, not the kitchen. Come out. So we're creating an environment for these kids just to feel loved and welcome. And you know, when you're nice to the child, the parent automatically trusts you better. So now the parents come to me afterwards and say, Marlene, Marlene, can you help me? One guy, he has walking sticks. And he said to me, the rubbers at the end of his walking sticks has worn through and he's slipping. Can I help him? It costs only like 15 pounds to get sets of three. But if you only get eight pounds, where do you get 15 pounds for your rubbers? You know, things like that. People bring their needs. So I bring whoever I can find from whoever church to come and help me. Just link, just come. So we've been able to, during the Easter time, I got some churches involved. And I said, right, just give me five people. It doesn't have to be five from this. At the end, it was like one from each church. And I said, let's, do, let's show them the true meaning of Easter. So the, um, we came in, and we sh- I took my TV, because I'm not allowed to use the, the, the hotel's TV. I plonked my TV on, and I showed them an animation of the Jesus, what really happened over Easter, the whole crucifixion. So imagine 70 kids sitting down, watching, about a hundred parents on the periphery seeing the first time what Easter is all about. My mission was to show these people this is Easter, not chocolate bunnies and Easter eggs. 
This is what the true meaning, because they've just arrived and they're going to believe whatever you tell them about Easter. So I wanted them to have first-hand knowledge of what Easter was about. And then afterwards we had an Easter egg hunt and we had to split them into groups of three because there's just too many of them. And they were hiding and looking. Oh, they loved it. And I said, right, we give toys for knowledge. We're going to exchange. So I bought a lot of junk toys like um, slinkies and like, you know, little cheap junk. And I said, if you listen carefully to the story, if you can tell me one thing about the story, I'll exchange your knowledge for one toy. And if I get another one, I'll exchange it for another toy. And that's how I got them to really focus and pay attention. And those kids, they all told me three things that they listened to. I'm like, where's Jesus now? What happened to Jesus? He died. Where is he now? He's alive. <laughs> Do we, does he love us? Yes. Right. Toys out. So we managed to get people to um, link in. So we told the Easter story over two hotels as well as in um, our local community because we're not all just about refugee kids. We've got our own British kids that also need Jesus. So we've run this in the local community. And we had like hundreds of kids hearing about Jesus over Easter. So we had the drop-ins in the refugee hotels and from that we um, hear that like one day the older kids were like, Marlene, these little kids are taking over. We want something for us, just for us, not for, the, for all the kids. So I said, okay girls, I promise you. After Easter, we will go to a coffee shop and we'll make bracelets and um, we'll just have a session for us. So I had like five, six 10 to 14 year olds, plus one mom because I don't want to be irresponsible. We went down to a local coffee shop. We sat, we made bracelets, and I just asked them, what's your stories? Tell me. What, how did you get here? Did you come on the boat? Did you come uh, on the plane? They all came on the boat. The one little girl said to me, Marlene, it was terrible. We tried four times to cross the channel. Twice we had to turn back because the weather was so bad. The waves were so high. We were supposed to be 40 people in the boat. We were more than 100. The sea patrol came and they said, you have to turn around or you're going to die. So we had to go back. The third time, my little brother, who was six years old, he fell overboard. It was just when we started. And they said, they're not turning back. So we had to jump out or leave him. So our family jumped back into the water to, so we can all be together. I was so scared. But at least our family is together. It was only on the fourth time we managed to get across. Now these people are running for their lives. What would you do? Would you risk your life? But they're risking their lives. They are hoping for a better life. That's their hope. They're seeing England as a utopia. Their hope. But we know that there's only true hope in Jesus Christ, in the promises he gives us. So, another little girl, 11-year-old, she's there by herself. She's like being looked after by this lady. She said to me, Marlene, I was four years old. 
I haven't seen my mum since I'm four. I'm 11 now. I was four years old when my mum gave me to a stranger in Eritrea and said she had to take me to my auntie in Ethiopia. My auntie, it took the stranger two years to get me to my auntie. When I finally got to my auntie, my auntie said, this is not safe, I need to go. And I was sent off again with some other people who took me with them. These people, we walked from Ethiopia through Sudan, through Africa, to Greece, to Turkey, eventually through to France on the boat to England. She, I said to her, okay, 17 countries she had to cross. She spent about two years in Sweden. She speaks fluent Swedish because they were trying to seek asylum in Sweden and for some reason it was declined. So then they try another one. She got to um, England. Uh, sorry, I lost my line of thought. She got to England and she said to me, I'm hoping to see my mother soon. This is what I'm hoping, just to see my mom. I said to her, which country is the best country? She goes, Sweden. I said, which country is the worst country? Greece. Why Greece? They tried to steal me and traffic me. I had to run for my life. I was nine years old. I hate Greece. I just narrowly escaped. This is the trauma that people go through. For her, she wants to see her mum. For the other guys, they're hoping for a new future, a new home. What do we hope for? We hope for Christ. It's our responsibility to show them that there is more to hope than just live this lifetime. Hope can stretch into eternity. During these sessions, there's some single people that come and sit and chat, just join in, because they're so bored, they've got nothing to do. I met this beautiful lady. She's not wearing a headscarf. I said, are you Muslim? She goes, no, I'm definitely not Muslim. Everybody from Iran is Muslim. But she's definitely not Muslim. I said, how come? You're from Iran. She said, I hate Islam. They want to force me to wear a headscarf. I will not do it. All they want Iranian women to do is to marry, have babies and cook for them. Turns out she had an opportunity to study in Russia. She's got a PhD in aeronautical engineering. Her dream is to work for NASA one day. She's managed to escape the oppressive regime there and she's managed to come to England. She was so relieved. She was from a very educated family. Her dad was assassinated because he, she, he wouldn't force her to follow Islam. And she narrowly escaped. She arrived in the UK. Three days after she arrived, she thought she was in a safe country. Finally, she can just be herself. She said to me, Marlene, when the, when the cab stopped and the hotel is immediate neighbours with the East London Mosque, the biggest mosque in England, she was like, no, I can't stay here. But she had to. Who does she turn to? She comes to the art and craft with the kids because children are safe, adults are not safe. So, during one of these sessions, I said to her, hmm, what's your number? Let's go for a coffee. And that's when she told me the story of her coffee. She goes, Marlene, I don't know what to do. I hate Islam. 
I'm no religion. And I was like, you know, Jesus can be the answer. Jesus can be it. Now she's on a journey. Do pray for her, please. Because she really needs help. This was about a month and a half ago that I met her. In this meantime, I'm struggling to get hold of her because the Wi-Fi in her room is not good. And she's like, Marlene, I need Wi-Fi. I need to be in touch with home office. I need to be in touch with the GP. I don't have... The, the, the hotel is just laughing and telling me I need to go make my bed in the lobby because that's the only place I can get reception and signal. Imagine she's got no money. She's all alone. So she has these panic attacks, as she would. She's been traumatized. Twice they had to call the ambulance on her that she was admitted because she thought she was dying. She had panic attacks. Do pray for her, please. This is the reality that these people have to live with. You don't know who's in the hotel next to you. You don't know if they're a pedophile, if they're going to hurt your child. Some of these people are from countries that are at war at each other. Greece and Turkey, Iran and Iraq. You know, you don't know who you're ending up in this hotel. And they stay there for temporary accommodation. Their temporary accommodation is two years sometimes which is the reality. So, I need to hurry up. Their hope has to be in Christ. Who's going to tell them? We need to get the local Christians in the churches to give them hope. I quickly want to share, I know guys, I'm taking up a little bit of time. I want to share two stories. One was a local Christian mom that I met in this one asylum seeker hotel. Her English was very poor and she... Um, joined the local church immediately. They helped her with English classes and stuff. And she helped me with the art and craft in the hotel. And one day I got to her and I said to her, Marilyn, you look sad. What's the matter? She goes, no, it's okay, Marlene, it's okay. I said, no, tell me. At the end of the session, I said to her, give me one thing to pray for you for. She said, Marlene, just pray that I trust the Lord more. I know he loves me. I know he will provide for me. I know he, he won't let me suffer unnecessary. But it's just so hard in me. And she started crying. Please help me. A few, fast forward a few months from that conversation. Overnight she got a phone call. Midnight, Thursday evening. You're getting moved to a new premises. You have to be ready at 8am the next morning. She had eight hours to pack up a whole lifetime of belonging, have friends say goodbye from midnight to 8 a.m. But the Lord, in the, in the meantime, you know, they moved her to Newcastle. But it's just amazing when I look at how God's planet, He brought them from Nicaragua to London for a year. In this year, they learned to speak a good, a, a decent English, and they learned, we've put them through a Christianity Explore course. We were going to let them do the course in Spanish in the hotel. But then they got moved away to um, Newcastle. When they got to Newcastle, I happened to be in Durham that weekend. She phones me to say, sorry, I can't help you with the Bible Holiday Club that you're planning. I said, I'm in Newcastle, where are you? She, I said, let me come and visit you. I was their first visitor in their new home in Newcastle. She said to me, Molly, there's a whole row of houses. Half of them are Spanish-speaking. They don't speak good English. We speak better English. 
They're all coming to us to help them. We're going to start a Bible study group in our new house and we're going to use the knowledge of Christianity Explore to share the good news of Jesus with these people. So God brought them from Nicaragua, trained them in London under hard circumstances to go off uh, to do mission work in Newcastle. Another young man that I've met, Iran, disabled. He arrived, he was a letting agent in Iran and he was letting his best customer would only rent a house for a month at a time and then move to a different location. So after a year of this, he said to him, why do you always only need the place for a month? And the guy said, oh, we have meetings, we have meetings. It turned out this was an underground church in Iran and they had to move, move around. He was allowed after a year to go attend one of these meetings. He didn't buy into Christianity, but he was not against it. And they gave him a Gospel of John, which he read and put in his drawer. A year later, he got a phone call from the guy saying, don't phone this number again and run for your life. He thought, oh, this this guy's joking. He happened to be staying with his grandma that evening because his grandma needed help. His mom phoned and said, what have you done? The police have been here. They've arrested your father. They found the Gospel of John in your drawer. Now in Iran, if you as a Muslim convert to Islam, it's the death penalty. So he had to run. He's disabled. He's the one who wanted to stop us. I spoke to him last week. It's been 18 months since he's been here. He said, please, just pray that my application gets seen to. He went to Germany for six years. He thought he'll be, he'll live in Germany. He became a Christian in Germany. He committed to the church and he's been on the go. In our hotel, him and this other girl who, who, who got hurt so badly came with another family to our church weekend away. And they feel loved, and so they're wanting to join our church, my personal church. Um, he's bringing people from the hotel to our Bible studies. Now, this guy, he's suffering. He's a Christian. He's there because he had to flee for his life because he's a Christian. We're sitting here, relaxed. We can practice our faith. These people are persecuted for it. So I'm pleading with you, what hope has he got? His hope is only Christ and Christ alone. So as we go out today, I'd like you to, we're going to look at two videos. So one is um, about the uh, Bible Holiday Club, about the Easter program, about the um, drop-ins with the art and craft in the hotels. The Bible Holiday Club was a four-day holiday club Ten churches that came together and we put on this program and we had about 56 um, asylum seeker kids who heard the gospel for the first time. Uh, the second video is Pierre and Marilyn. You can hear firsthand their story. And then I'd like us to pray for, for these people, please. Pray for me. Thank you so much for those of you who have been praying for me. This year has been a hard year for me. I lost my dad last year in South Africa and my mom passed away this year and God is so, so amazing. I never, I normally go in December to South Africa but 
this year I decided just I was given a gift of 400 pounds and, and they said go see your mom a ticket to South Africa is cheaper 650 and I thought oh I don't really want to go to winter in South Africa when it's summer is finally here in the UK um, but let me just see I found a flight for 391 pounds with hand luggage only and I thought I'm going I arrived the Wednesday in South Africa Wednesday, Thursday, Friday we were, Mom and I was going to go on holiday on Monday Mom had a bit of a chest infection I said Mom let me take you to the doctors No, no, I've been on antibiotics, I'm fine, I'm fine Saturday morning she says maybe you can take me to the doctors I'm like Mom, the GPs are closed now But you know what, we'll go to the hospital Of course they admitted her immediately and we still have plans to go on Monday. Sunday morning they phoned me. Mom passed away. Isn't God good that I'm the child who lives in the faraway country, had the opportunity to spend four days with my mom before she passed away. I had four quality days. I was the one who saw her last. Not my brother who lives next door. But I had the privilege of being with her in those last days. So, pray, it's been a hard year, but God is good, God is good, He sustains us. If we cling to His promises, He will never leave us or forsake us. He holds us in His hands, He cares for us, He is our wonderful counsellor, and like we've learned about hope, our only hope should be Jesus Christ and His resurrection and, and life. So, look at the promises of God. Listen, read them, make them your own. Internalize them, claim them. Say, Lord, you promised, you promised you would do this, that and that. And God, he, he swore by himself, he will sustain you. So, let's have a look at these two videos and then we can pray.